Thank you, Steve. Good morning, church. You guys are already asleep. It's not a good sign. It is great to be together and worship to begin our week. I'm glad you're here, especially if you're visiting, passing through. There are a lot of other places you could be this morning, but I guarantee you, being in worship is far better than being at the mall today. Amen? Delaney and I went to Target yesterday morning, and I could tell it was going to be a long day for the poor people who worked at that store. Uh, and that'll be the whole week, but uh, it's no better way to start than worship. So we're grateful you're here. It is that Christmas season, so we have lots of members out traveling, uh, being able to spend time with family, be praying for them. Uh, we'll look forward to their return. Uh, I want to talk about a seemingly simple story tucked away in Mark chapter 14. Now, it's an interesting story for a number of reasons, one of which is the fact that as you come to the end of this story, Mark chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus says what, what takes place here, what this woman has done, will be shared whenever the gospel story is told, that you will tell this woman's story every time the gospel is told. Have you told this lady's story? I mean, Brent read the text earlier, and I appreciate him doing that. But when, when you get to this verse and Jesus says that, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. When was the last time you heard her story? When was the last time you told her story? And in fact, the way Mark tells the story in this chapter, he doesn't even tell you the woman's name. But he says her story will be told. It's a curious text. But it is an incredible story. Now Jim and I have been preaching through the gospel of Mark. And Mark is trying to do something kind of challenging. You know in our political world today they'll hire uh, communication directors whose job it is to spin stories. So no matter whatever story comes out in the headlines, if it's the president's spokesperson, their job is to spin the story, to make it look good for the president or whatever politician. It doesn't matter how bad things are, they seem to find something good. And, and there's a sense in which it feels like Mark is trying to do that. Because what Mark is trying to do is he's trying to convince you that the true power and the true hope for all of humanity, rest in giving your life to a crucified Jewish peasant. How are you going to sell that? And Mark is writing his gospel, we believe, to, to Christians in Rome, Christians and maybe non-Christians, who's surrounded by Roman trappings and Roman power and Roman influence and Roman wealth. And what Mark is trying to do is to say the true kingdom is not found in the seat of government and the seat of power of Rome. The true kingdom and true hope is found in following Jesus Christ. How do you tell that story? Last week we talked about Mark chapter 13. Not the most exciting fluffy text. I'll give you that. How do you explain that the destruction of the Jewish temple and the Jewish capital of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., how do you explain that in light of a powerful God? And Jesus says, I'll tell you how. They rejected God's Son, 
and the destruction of that city and that temple is vindication of the Son of God. Well, now Mark tells you another story, and it's an interesting story. He sets it up with two facts as he starts chapter 14, two important facts that govern not just this story, but really everything else you're going to hear as Mark finishes his story of Jesus. Fact number one, it is the time of the Passover and unleavened bread. Now, we're not Jewish. We don't typically practice Jewish feasts and festivals, but if you were Jewish, that fact is important. Passover, the time when Jerusalem swells with thousands and thousands of pilgrims all showing up to celebrate the story of God defeating a kingdom and God delivering his people from slavery. This story that brings families of Jewish background together around the table to eat a, a Passover lamb and to eat bitter herbs and to, and to retell the story. Moses says this would happen back in Exodus 12 that you will gather around this table and you will remind each other how God delivered his people out of slavery into freedom and he destroyed or he brought down the most powerful kingdom known to man at the time. And he did it by ten plagues. And he did it by killing the firstborn of our enemies. And he did it by parting the Red Sea. And he did it by delivering us through the Red Sea. And he did it by leading us through the wilderness. Mark begins this story by telling you, I want you to think of this story. And see if what I tell you sounds familiar. That's how he begins. And there's a second fact presented as the chapter begins. The chief priests and the scribes want to kill Jesus. Does that make any sense to you? As Mark has told the story, Jesus has healed the sick. Jesus has cast out demons. Jesus has calmed storms. Jesus has begged for people to return back to God. And Mark 14 starts by telling you they want him dead. Why? Do they want people to be sick? Do they want demons to continue to, to control things? Do they want to be captive to forces of nature that they can't control? Why would anyone want to kill Jesus? If you've been reading Mark, he's given you glimpses. Because Jesus doesn't do things the way they want him to. Because Jesus is a threat to their power and their influence and their privilege. Jesus eats with people we don't want him eating with. Jesus tells us to live life differently than we live life. Jesus says that the way we're doing religion and the way we control the temple isn't the way, and we can't have that. And so as Mark begins to tell this closing chapter in the life of Jesus' earthly ministry, he sets it up by telling you, I want you to be thinking about Passover, and I want you to ask yourself, why would they want to kill Jesus? And that brings us to this interesting story. While the chief priests and the 
elders are conspiring. They've, they've met together kind of under the cover of darkness and said something has to be done about this man. But we can't do it when all these people are around. That could cause a problem. They're more concerned about the kingdom of Rome than they are about the kingdom of God because if they arrest Jesus, then all these people gathered in Jerusalem are going to be upset about that and they're going to riot about that and then Rome is going to come down and kill all of us. We can't have that. Then we'd really lose our power and influence. And so as they're conspiring at the beginning of Mark chapter 14, Jesus is reclining at a dinner. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? All the kingdoms and powers and influencers gathered trying to figure out what to do with this Jesus who's reclining at a table. And there are lots of things in this story as you read it that are unconventional. For instance, do you notice whose house Jesus is eating in? Mark says Jesus is eating in the house of Simon the leper. And Mark, for whatever reason, he doesn't give us details. Preachers and scholars like to say, well, if you contrast this text with the one in John chapter 12, or if you contrast this text with the one in Matthew chapter 26, and you compare these, then it looks like he's in the house of Bethany, and this is actually Mary and maybe Lazarus, and and is he anointing the head or the feet? We really don't know. It's kind of weird. Don't do that. Let Mark be Mark. Let Mark tell you his story. And for whatever reason, Mark's story sounds different than those others. It may be a different setting. It may be a different story. It may be the same that can be compared together. Mark says, let me tell my story. Jesus is in the house of a man named Simon, who everyone knows as Simon the leper. What's he doing there? Is he... Is he Simon, formerly known as the leper? Is this someone Jesus healed in the past? Mark doesn't tell you. Is this Simon who is currently a leper? That would seem kind of strange. Is it Simon who becomes a leper after Jesus dies and resurrects and goes? I don't know. Mark doesn't tell you. But what we do know is Jesus is eating with someone you don't normally eat with. And if that's all this story was, that would be weird in and of itself. But it gets more weird. Jesus and it looks like his disciples are eating with Simon the leper. And in the middle of the meal, this woman walks in. Now again, I know you're tempted to jump over to John and say, this is Mary. Mark doesn't tell you that. Mark doesn't give you her name. Mark says, this woman. She walks in, and in the middle of the meal, she does something weird. Now, can we be honest? Just the fact that she walks into the room right in the middle of the meal is weird enough, isn't it? I mean, for one, we're not Jewish, but in the Jewish culture... The men and women didn't really do this. If men are gathered in a room eating, the women are only there to serve. And if you're a relative, that's a little different in some cases. But in this case, it seems like you've got this group of men, and in walks this woman. 
If she's related, okay, maybe is serving. But what she does is weird. If she's not related, imagine you're sitting there eating in someone's house and a total stranger walks in. Why didn't they stop her? I don't know. Were they so caught up in their own conversation? I don't know. Mark says this woman walks in and she's carrying an alabaster jar of nard. An incredibly expensive oil imported from India. Not the kind of thing you go down to the local Bethany Walmart and pick up on the, on the aisle. In fact, you later learn in this text that what this lady has in her hand is the equivalent of an entire year's salary. Put that in modern American English. The average salary median income in the United States is somewhere around $50,000, $55,000. This woman walks in with a jar of, of oil that's worth $55,000. And she breaks it. And she pours it on the head of Jesus. I don't know if you're interested, if you've done all your Christmas shopping yet, but you realize today, I just for kicks and grins, if you go online and search for perfumes and oils, Gary, if you haven't bought Ruby anything, for $7,700, you can buy her some perfume called Power for Women. A posh, powerful royal scent, a tempting composition built on the fusion of amber and oud accords, a magnificent perfume for gorgeous and authoritative women. Ruby, you need this. And for $7,700, Gary, it can be hers. Imagine... I mean, just the thought of purchasing that. And this lady, in Mark 14, walks into this room of men, and she breaks this year's worth of income-valued oil. She pours it on Jesus' head. Now, my suspicion is, if you were sitting around that table, you may have responded kind of like the disciples responded. What is she doing? Don't you know, don't you know what could have been done with that, that oil? You know how much, you know how many people that could have fed? You know how many medical bills she could have paid for people who are sick and dying? All the beggars outside of the city gates of Bethany, she could have fed them. And she's wasting it on Jesus. And that's what the disciples said. This could have been sold and given to the poor. It's a very righteous indignation, isn't it? And Jesus says, leave this woman alone. Someone bought for a former secretary of mine a mug that just has that verse on it. Leave this woman alone. I like that. Jesus says, she's done what she could. 
It's fascinating to me that Jesus is not concerned at all. The disciples are concerned. The chief priests and the elders are gathering, trying to figure out what to do to kill Jesus. Jesus is reclining at a table. He knows what's going on, and he's not concerned about that. The disciples watch this lady walk in, break this alabaster jar over Jesus' head and pour him with oil, and Jesus isn't concerned with that. The disciples say, you could have fed the poor. Jesus is unconcerned. And Jesus says, she's prepared me for burial. And whenever the story of the gospel is told from now on, what this lady has done will be told right there with her. And yet, her story is not one we hear often. Kind of interesting, isn't it? So as I think about this text and read through what Mark is doing and telling, and why does he tell this story here in this way? I want you to think about just a few things. The first thing is, this woman, in some way, whether she realizes it fully or not, this woman has brought together the two powerful truths that the Gospel of Mark has been begging us to see from the very beginning. Jesus is the Christ, and that means he has to die. In the Old Testament, there were different reasons for anointing, and, and scholars and people disagree about what's happening here, but in the Old Testament, you would, you would anoint guests or you would, anoint, you would anoint people kind of as a blessing and a sign of hospitality. You remember Psalm 23? You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Sometimes it's a sign of hospitality. Oftentimes, anointing is what you do with priests. This text in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And they paint this picture. They say it's like it's like the oil running down the head of Aaron, down his beard. It's a sign of blessing and joy and contentment. But most often in the Old Testament, anointing is what you do to a king. 1 Samuel chapter 9, God sends Samuel to anoint the next king or the first king of Israel. And you find that they take this oil and they pour it over the head of Saul. Whether this woman realizes it or not, she has combined these two powerful thoughts that we still struggle to understand today. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. And that means he has to die. And Jesus says, what this woman has done in anointing me has prepared me for burial. Our gospel is a gospel of a crucified king. And when Mark is telling this story to his readers in Rome, that makes no sense to them. We should follow Rome for their power, 
Pax Romana for their peace. We should follow Rome for their wealth and their influence. And Mark is saying, no, the true king and the true kingdom comes through a crucified Messiah. And this woman in this act of extravagance has prepared Jesus for burial by pointing out his kingship. It's a beautiful start to the story that will march you to the cross in the Gospel of Mark. There's a second thing I think Mark is doing in this text. It's found in this phrase, Jesus says, this woman has did what she could do. It's kind of an echo back to Mark chapter 12. Remember when Jesus is sitting in the temple and he's watching people give and there is this widow who comes with her two mites and she gives everything she has. That's a poor widow. And Jesus said she has given more than everyone. And now you have this rich woman in Mark 14. And she's done the same. She's given everything she's got. She's done what she can do. It's a scholar of the past named R.C. Sproul who made this great statement about this woman. He said, Jesus could have amplified that and said, she doesn't have the power to go over there with these people and stop this plot to execute me. She doesn't have the kind of power and influence. She can't raise an army to defend me. She's powerless. So all that she did is all that she could do. And she didn't come just to celebrate me and adore me. She came to anoint my body for burial. This woman comes with her most priceless possession and gives all of it to anoint Jesus before he dies. Beloved, this is the most sacrificial, extravagant, heart-rendering gifts of all time. And Jesus says, she has done a good work for me. This woman put her money where her faith was. And the disciples didn't think that was enough. Jesus sees our hearts in different ways than people around us do. There are people in our world and in our culture that are trying to tell you how you should follow Jesus. And there are people who are trying to tell you the boundaries and borders of what true religion looks like, what you ought to be doing. You'd be crazy to give your life like that. You'd be crazy to spend your money like that. You'd be crazy to live relationships like that. You'd be crazy to be that kind of Christian. And this woman says, I don't care. I'm serving Jesus. And when Jesus says she's done all that she could do, Mark turns the mirror and turns the text on you and me and says, so what are you doing? What are you giving? How are you following Jesus? There's one other point in this story. And to be honest with you, I, I don't think it's exactly a point Mark's making. So let's be fair to Mark. But I think it's an interesting thing to think about. A few years ago, I was invited to be a chaperone on one of Keaton's seventh grade school trips. Overnight with seventh graders. 
That's living life. And I was, I was in the, I was in the cabins with the boys. And they had cabins for the girls over there. And, and I don't know if you've ever been to church camp, you ever hung around with seventh grade boys. There is this toxic smell that people sell at Walmart called Axe. You smelled Axe? You've been around enough junior high boys who have Axe in their possession, and it is like napalm. And these boys decided that what they would do is they would all grab their can of axe and they would find a way over to the girls' cabin and they would unload all of the axe they had. Now, I'm pretty sure this was three or four years ago. There's probably not a bug still alive in and around those cabins. Let me tell you, you could smell axe from all over that campus. Now, what you think of this? They're eating dinner, and this woman walks into the house, and she breaks this alabaster jar with a year's worth of perfume and pours it down the head of Jesus. When she left, she smelled like Jesus. And when those disciples sitting around that table left, they smelled like Jesus. Now again, I'm not here to tell you Mark makes that point. I just want you to think about that for a minute. What are you giving to Jesus? How are you serving Jesus in a way that makes you look, sound, and even smell like Jesus? And don't let anyone try to tell you how you should commit yourself to Jesus. Don't let the world tell you you're crazy. Don't let the world tell you that's too much. Don't let the world tell you what's conventional and not conventional. You listen to Jesus and you give Jesus what you can. That's how Mark begins this journey towards the cross. With this woman who gives this extravagant gift. Willing to put everything on the line. Because she can see what nobody else can see. That he is the king. He is the Messiah. And she's prepared him to die. And Mark has been telling you all along, that's who the true king is. And that's what the true kingdom looks like. What are you doing? This morning I offer the invitation, but today's a little different. Because today when we got to the church building, Hoppy made us aware that there is someone he's been studying with and someone he's been talking with who wants to give her life to Christ. We're going to offer the invitation so that she can come forward, but I suspect there could be other people here this morning who want to do the same. That you have come to see Jesus, and you're willing to do what you can do. And he says, if you'll believe me, 
you'll follow me, you'll trust me. Meet me in the waters of baptism, come up to walk in a new life, and follow the true king. If that's you this morning, we want to give you that opportunity to respond to King Jesus. While together we stand and sing together.